and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How do we properly cite all of the software that we use and all the science that we make? Very interesting questions today. I'm your solo host today, Richard Littauer. Hello, everyone. That's also me. I don't know why I just said hello again. And I'm really excited to come here with our guest today. One of our guests is a repeat guest. We have Karthik Ram on today. Karthik, how are you doing? Doing great. How about you, Richard? I'm doing really well. Stepped on the scorpion this morning. Don't do that. And then we also have James Howison. James, how are you? I'm doing great, Rich. Excellent. Great to have you both on. So now you know what their voices sound like, but who are these strange ethereal people in the ether? Good question. James Howison is an associate professor in the School of Information at UT Austin, University of Texas, Austin. And Karthik Ram, we've had him before. Karthik is at the Berkeley Institute for Data Science. Karthik, what's your full title again? Senior Research Scientist. Awesome. Both of you are longtime aficionados of better research practices. So how do we really work on making sure that we do our science better in a more open way? Not necessarily always open source. In fact, you two are probably more eloquent at talking about what you've been working on than I am. And I'm in luck. There's a paper that you've recently written that sums up a lot of the work you've been doing recently, which I really want to get into today. So the paper is super, super cool. Karthik, can you talk a bit about how it started, what the title is, and where I can find it? Yeah, so it's a research report called Research Software Visibility Infrastructure Priorities. And it's a report that James and I produced for the Australian Research Data Commons. And it came about through conversations with the software folks at ARDC, and they were interested in getting some experts to help identify some of the challenges around the use, discovery, credit, acknowledgement of research software in an Australian context and get a better understanding of what is actionable to make research software a first-class output. And so James and I interviewed different types of stakeholders, including researchers, funders, infrastructure providers, to try and get a sense of what they perceived were the challenges and what they thought might be possible solutions. And we synthesized all of that information together into a condensed set of priorities that we think are urgent, useful to implement in the near term, and ones that could have meaningful impact on the research software landscape in Australia. So first immediate question, does this have any relevance to research software output outside of Australia? Oh, absolutely. The recommendations are tailored a little bit for this audience because they commissioned the report and they're hoping to have impact on their national software agenda. But I think the recommendations are fairly general in that they could be applied anywhere in the world. The, I was just say the irony with that is that I grew up in Australia and you might think that was a connection to this being in Australia. But in fact, I did my undergrad degree there and I actually don't know much about academia in Australia because I got my PhD out in the States. So during the focus groups, I often said, if you detect an Australian accent, don't think that that means I actually understand the Australian context, explain everything to me from start to finish. And what was interesting was that people that we spoke to there were really similar to the people that we've been speaking to in the US, in Europe in the UK and other places, they were groups of researchers, groups of research software engineers, groups of 
people who are working for ARDC and trying to build infrastructure to support researchers in Australia. So I think it is true that there is some, there's definitely some focusing on some of the Australian context and some of ARDC's former work, but should be interesting to anyone who's been thinking about better research software. Just to give this more context, is there an American equivalent to the ARDC? Great question. I think that sort of answers your earlier question about does this only apply to Australians or elsewhere? I think the real struggle is that for a country as large as the US, there are far too many different types of institutions and entities that have a say in open source and software and other types of scholarly infrastructure that it would be hard to build consensus quickly to go implement something. But it's certainly possible in an Australian context because it's definitely smaller, a lot more coordinated. And so that's kind of the difference that I see. So many of the ideas that we have put forward could be implemented by certain institutions, scientific societies, but I think there's not a single large overseeing entity that could sort of say, hey, everybody adopt these guidelines because it makes sense. Awesome. Okay. So this doesn't just apply to a single domain in the U.S., but applies sort of broadly. And in fact, the U.S. is just one of the potential areas that this stuff can apply. You could also say work with FSI in the EU or in the U.K. It applies to anyone working on research data software and particularly to the funders who are looking to work with people building that sort of software to say, what are your priorities for how things should get funded and so on? Is that an accurate way of depicting it? Yeah, and absolutely. And in the past different national organizations have learned from other plans written in other countries. So we were always looking for ideas that we could potentially implement, things that we've overlooked, success stories in other places. And so we try to coordinate as much as we can, given that we represent different stakeholders and different levels of resources. But I think we are all trying to learn from each other as we go through this process. Excellent. I'm really glad you're working together, and I'm really happy that this work is being done. One of my first questions is, how is this exactly related to open source? Can you help me answer that? Absolutely, Rich. So I started out, I'm a social scientist. I started out researching open source development and did some participation. And some people might know that BibDesk, a BibTech manager, wrote my dissertation on that. And when I started a postdoc, I, I was working with Jim Herbsler at Carnegie Mellon. And he and I said, well, what's similar to general open source, but a little bit different in some ways. And we really zeroed in on academics who are writing software to make their contribution to science, right? Obviously, a lot of open source is used by researchers throughout uh, science and general scholarship, but academics who are within the, within universities and trying to publish, you know, what we found was that in interviews and everything, that they have particular sets of incentives and particular needs that kind of control what they are able to spend their time on, right? So the interviewees were saying a lot of things like, we absolutely love building software, but we really need to make sure that we are also getting publications out, that we're also winning grants. And so everything was cast within this kind of academic reputation economy. So that's where these recommendations kind of fit in that overlap of people who are publishing subject, working in universities and building software. Awesome. Okay. That's really great context. So this is going to appeal to some of you. Of course, in the big long tail of dependencies for scientific software, a lot of people are writing code, which ends up in academic output, but isn't necessarily made for that. And some of these recommendations, I hope, keep that in mind. With that having been said, what are the recommendations that you have? 
I'll get started. I'll do one and then Karthik do the next and we'll come back. So number one is to work with research domain leaders to build norms about what software to cite in publications. What sort of norms are you talking about? Should we cite everything that we have? Well, this is exactly the thing. So there's been a bunch of work done on how to cite software. So everything from formats like, you know, what does the APA manual say about when, about how you should cite software? But in our discussions with the focus groups, we really focused in on this question of which software really needed to be cited. And some of our focus group participants started out by saying, absolutely, every piece of software that you use in your whole stack should be cited. And then they often sort of took a breath and they said, but, you know, I've had some issues with that in publications. Colleagues have really sort of said, hey, this list is a bit too long and you've got to knock it back. And one of our interviewees said they want to cite everything about the biology since 1920 and nothing about the software that really underlied this particular research. So what we identified was that different fields have different norms for what rises to the level of contribution for actually being mentioned formally in the publication with the idea that this the reference list is relatively short and papers need to be readable. And as everyone knows, software stacks are incredibly deep. So what we're recommending is that scientific domains start to have a real conversation about this internally, because only the people who are really close to the research can make the call about what actually needs to be cited. I'm really happy that you don't give a really formal definition here for what is necessary to cite. You say work with domain leaders to build norms, right? To build new norms. For me, the idea that you don't cite everything is kind of strange because we're taught to cite our work, right? We're taught to say how we got to the solution all the time and who helped us there. To say, oh, no, you only cite the important things seems to be missing something. I don't want to go too much further without getting on to guidance number two, because I think it helps answer the question that I have in my head. So Karthik, what's the second recommendation? Our second recommendation is that there needs to be support to create what are software bill of materials for research papers so that we get an inventory of all the software that might have gone into the production of a research outcome. So doesn't this contravene the previous recommendation by saying you should use SBOPs? Yeah, so it's really interesting. As we started digging into the question around citations, there's still a lot of tension around how much can you cite? Can you cite every single piece of software you might have ever used? And imagine a field that's very computationally intensive. You could end up with dozens and dozens of pages of citations for software. And that's something really hard for journals and researchers to wrap their mind around. And so we started thinking about why do people actually cite software? What's the reason behind it? And what type of acknowledgement they're trying to make by citing software? And so as we started thinking through this, it became clear that citation is unlikely to ever fill the need of informing us about all the software that goes into the production of a research outcome. And so we started thinking more broadly about other solutions that might exist in this space. And SBOMS basically made sense because it sort of takes away the desire to cite something for the purposes of highlighting an interesting tool or some sort of domain-specific approach, which is kind of how people select what software they might cite, to then taking that value judgment away and then creating a list of software that might combine acknowledgement of use and acknowledgement for credit together in a machine actionable way. So 
I personally really like the idea of using XBombs to cite all of the software that you use in your research process for a, p- a paper. I think it makes a lot of sense because it removes the main issue that I rail against on this podcast, which is only charismatic projects get funding and only charismatic projects get noticed, right? You're more likely to cite the project that you personally installed as opposed to, say, all of their dependencies. Using an S-bomb alleviates that by saying each one of the dependencies is equally important to the final running of the program. Playing devil's advocate to that perspective, that's not actually true. Some dependencies are more important than others because some of them are not fungible, right? Programs that do really heavy math are going to be more relevant than, say, take URL and turning it into a string as a dependency. And so how do SBOMs deal with that? If you're putting all of the citations on one plane of importance, how do you show which projects were more essential to the research? Yeah, so that is an excellent take and gets into some more of the nuance around the distinction between using SBOMs and citations. So we are not actually saying that SBOMs create equal value citations for all the software components of a particular research paper. Instead, what we are trying to get to with SBOMs is to understand the underlying scientific infrastructure, in this case software, that is driving individual research efforts, research in a certain field, so that we can better invest in the tools and the people behind those tools. It doesn't mean SBOMs would make citations unnecessary for software. People can still cite domain-specific software, software that is interesting in that context, and kind of work with the limitations that we already have. So if there are artificial limitations on how many pieces of citations you could have, You can still reserve that space for, as you say, a really impactful tool that helped to accomplish the research. And then if you use some sort of string manipulation tool that is domain agnostic, that can show up in the SBOM as infrastructure that can help you. In fact, we noticed this exact response from some of our focus group participants that said, it's really not interesting to know which tool you might have used to munch data because there's 25 tools that do that. It's intellectually not interesting to learn that from a paper, but I'm really keen to learn which modeling tool you applied because that choice can really make a huge difference. The researchers are experts in scientific explanation, and they're going to pick packages to mention that pertain to really understanding the research that's done in the paper, whereas the SBOM is going to give us insight into the software infrastructure that made the research possible. And those two things sound like they overlap a lot, but I think when we focus on this difference of some of the participants used words like replaceable or fungible or general or generic, and making a place that we get insight into that without having to have arguments with editors, without having to have arguments with co-authors about what is relevant to the specific scientific explanation of the paper. So citations for scientific explanation S-bombs for infrastructural insight. I like that a lot. What I particularly like about this approach is that it seems to me to be applicable outside of the academic sphere, because I can imagine S-bombs also being useful, say, in an industrial context for security, in the sense that it shows which packages are more useful for our global enterprises to continually work and depend upon. And we already see this happening, say, with the sovereign tech funds trying to fund infrastructure projects with the Digital Infrastructure Insights Fund also trying to do similar work. Do you think that's a fair take that this is applicable elsewhere? 
Oh, absolutely. I think SPOMs actually more make more sense in a very general context, not just for academic researchers in providing that sort of infrastructure visibility. So if you think back to why SBOMs were created, they were created for a security reason to make sure that you understood vulnerabilities and components over time and really address those challenges right away. But I think it, it turns out that SBOMs actually create this beautiful inventory of all the tools that might have gone to the production of a software, but can also be applied to generating a list of tools that went into the production of a research paper. So you get details about the source, the version number, and other details. And you're absolutely right. I think you are sort of at the next step of what can we do with these infrastructure insights. So once you've got the infrastructure insights, you can then start to look at what types of tools are being used together, not necessarily tools that belong to the same package ecosystem. And you can start to identify opportunities for collaboration that you could potentially go through and fund. You mentioned the Sovereign Tech Fund, which is kind of interested in identifying critical open source tools, kind of like the XKCD cartoon, which fairly represents curl maintained by one person. So you can also start to identify tools like that that are super critical to different research fields without good replacements being maintained by very small number of individuals or even just one individual. That might be an intervention for funding or some other action to make that more sustainable. So yes, this approach is valid within research. It's very useful to funders. It's actually super useful in a corporate open source ecosystem as well. Yeah, and I think that takes us to our third recommendation, which we create called Create a Software Use Infrascope as an Observatory based on software mentions in publications to highlight particular areas of strength or opportunity in Australia. So software use infrascope is the idea, which links back to, to work done by many others. I mean, one thinks of Depsy and also Dan Katz and our fund's indirect and or transitive credit idea, which basically says the infrastructure that underlies scientific papers can be weighted by the importance of the paper. And of course, citations is a imperfect measure of impact, but it's a useful one. And so packages that support papers that are getting a lot of citations are uh, making a really you know crucial scientific contribution, right? And I think that the idea here, particularly for Australia, but I think it also applies to any university and OSPOs are looking into this as well, is saying like, what do we use more than others in our research? Right. So if you take any group of researchers, in this case, we were talking about all the publications in Australia, and then you look at the software that's used in those publications and you look at all the dependencies of those pieces of software, there's a decent chance that you're going to start to see areas that are more emphasized in this case in Australia or perhaps at a university campus or within a discipline. And then you're going to be able to understand what packages either need more support or need more emphasis, or as Karthik said before, perhaps you'll notice that there are packages that are frequently used together, but don't technically depend on each other. And that's an idea we've been pursuing for quite a while, because if you can identify packages that are used together frequently, then you can do things like fund workshops to get them working together so that they understand how their end users are actually using those packages together. And you give the people who are building these packages a resource to argue for their contribution. And that's what was awesome about Depsy when it was up and running. Depsy is a website that uh, Jason Prim and Heather Pivovar set up, which sort of did a prototype version of this. So we're talking about 
being able to link from publications to the software that's used in it, and then down into the dependency stack to really get insight into how software is supporting research. First question that comes to mind, I love the idea of an infoscope. I think it's really, really awesome. But the way you phrase this recommendation sounds to me like step one, draw two circles. Step two, draw the freaking owl. How do we make the infrastructure? Well, great. So identifying software mentions in publications is something we've been working on for quite a while, as have other people, right? So what we found was that people don't tend to cite software formally, but they do tend to mention it informally in the full text. So I was lucky enough to get some funding from the Sloan Foundation to work with a group of 30 students to read close to 5,000 PDFs and mark up what we thought were software mentions. And we worked on that and released what's called the SoftSide dataset. And then we've been working with Patrice Lopez from the Grobid project to process academic PDFs, turn them into TEI XML, and then actually identify the software mentions that are in the publications. There's a lot of work there. The Chan Zuckerberg initiative has also taken SoftSide dataset and built out what they call their CZI software mentions dataset. So that was a a different machine learning model that they trained on those mentions to actually identify software mentions in the publications. And also say there's another uh, project called SOMISI, which is out of Germany, and they also have a gold standard dataset that's slightly different in some ways. And so we really have what's in place to be able to identify the software that's mentioned in publications. But there's a lot of work needed beyond that and really invite people who are interested in this area because we've got to do disambiguation. We've got to link to repositories in order to kind of build out this graph of software in academia. I really look forward to seeing that continue to bear fruit, which is super, super cool. I know the CZI had a workshop relatively recently in the last few months to work on this which is really exciting. It seems to be an area that's ripe for more research. I don't want to be the academic who says, let's do more. But yeah, super, super cool. And good work doing that with a soft site. I'm so sorry to all of those undergrads who had to read 3,000 papers, but someone's got to make the, the learning set, right? Well, the thing I'm doing right at the moment is actually putting together an email to email all of them to find uh, all the email addresses and say, hey, look, remember that work you did? It's out the world. It's getting some use. And thanks again for the work. And of course, we were able to pay them through the support of the Sloan Foundation. So that was okay, uh, cool. That was spectacular. Well, I hope they all get first author. What's the uh, fourth recommendation? Yeah. So the fourth recommendation is that we need to promote the creation and dissemination of fully worked out use cases aimed at different skill levels. So again, this is kind of approaching it from the perspective of a researcher. So one big challenge and thread that we see across uh, different disciplines is that you're a researcher, you're trying to accomplish a task, you Google around and you find a tool and you think, hey, from the quick description of the readme, I think it might be useful, but then there's no clear example to help you truly understand what it does, how it does it. And so people might go down the rabbit hole of trying to work through some of the documentation and then seeing what it does. And then after a lot of time, realize, well, this is actually not the right tool for me. And this kind of sunk cost is hard for a lot of people who don't have enough time to sort of try out different tools. And so a really important desire that researchers have is to get access to use cases that describe how a tool might be used with real-world data, real-world examples at different levels of complexity so they can quickly evaluate whether a tool is right for them or not and then move on if it's not right. Do we have that tool already? 
Or no, we should just promote the creation of such a tool. This is not necessarily a tool, but the recommendation is that people who develop software should actually put some effort into writing clear examples that are targeted at researchers with different skill levels. People just getting started out, people trying to work with fairly large, complex data sets, and just put them out there because that is a really important entry point into the software. Not everyone is a super skilled person that can sleuth around a GitHub repo, read the documentation in detail, and quickly find and extrapolate whether an example might work for them or not. So a way of thinking about this wouldn't necessarily be just have more examples, but also when you are funding research or when you're beginning to start research and you're say, you know how much the timeline is, plan to have extra time to write tutorials, to write the documentation, to figure out how other people can eventually use the software. And if possible, do any sort of user studies to see what research level people are going to be coming at your work with. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's, it's seeing this moment when somebody's considering your tool as a chance to have the research world coalesce around a package and thinking, what can we do within the tools that have been funded or are out there and people have worked on to make sure we don't lose that moment? The folks groups were saying was people have tutorials, but they tend to be at the, almost the highest level of complexity because people are proud of what they've done. They're academics. They're used to needing to justify the intellectual merit of their work. But the simplest on-ramps are often not there. And that's what we need to make sure that packages are producing. And as I think what's really key, you said there is that's extra work. And the funders need to you know acknowledge that and make sure that that's part of the project from the start. I think that also applies to open source communities that aren't necessarily explicitly research communities. It's often very, very difficult for people to get engaged with open source because you're expected to be this tall to ride the ride or go RTFM. It would be a whole lot more convenient if we had tools to help people at early and mid levels to basically work with various software. That's important that are looking to have more contributors. Obviously, not all open source packages are looking to have other people be part of it or are looking to build extensive communities. But when you are looking for more usage, having that sort of tool for different levels of experience is really, really helpful. Let's move on to research number five. What is recommendation number five? Yeah, so recommendation number five is to support existing technology approaches to software archiving. This one's pretty straightforward. One thing that people who provide infrastructure to help academics have done in the data space is create data repositories. And those data repositories are hosting and holding on to data sets and making them discoverable. And they're key contributions. So the, the question comes up all the time, should we have something similar for software? Key difference here is that we already have excellent archiving facilities for software, right? Everything from Zenodo through to Software Heritage. And they need support. They need development, but they don't need to be replicated at institutional levels or at national levels. So we're really arguing that the ARDC here should promote the use of these existing large-scale automated archives rather than expect individual researchers who've written software to then do an extra additional effort of depositing it in a specialized archive. Hot take. So you say this is for research, but you actually don't know what all research is or where all research is going to touch. And technically, the entire field of computer science is somewhat of a research thing. So when we have large government level initiatives that are trying to, say, make sovereign tech, 
Should they instead be working with tools like Zenodo and Software Heritage to collaboratively build archives of the world's digital infrastructure instead of building their own siloed communities? Yes, no? Yeah, yeah absolutely. 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 Yeah, I think uh, curated collections that are supported on the existing infrastructure rather than new infrastructure, which is then just another thing that needs to be maintained. So the actual archiving infrastructure can be centralized and then people can create collections that point into those elements. Sweet. I kind of set you up for that one. Thanks for bearing with me. Recommendation number six kind of goes along with that, with supporting specialized communities of practice. Are you talking about things like the carpentry, things like our studio? What, what are you talking about here? So we are talking about people who have an aligned interest in research topic or a piece of software or something along those lines and give them spaces both online and offline to connect and work with each other. I think a lot of this community needs no introduction to hackathons and events like that, but a lot of good comes out of those events and people really enjoy having a really productive, safe, welcoming space online or offline to be able to work with each other and collaborate on problems. And they tend to have really large positive impacts on people trying to get work done. And we've noticed that there are certain very specialized communities of domain researchers that that really help them be productive. And when some of these spaces start to disappear, it really does slow research down quite a bit. So the thing that came up in the focus groups was really in the context of students, postdocs, faculty working away on a piece of research and needing to reach out for help, support, insight. And people talked about like how important the local labs are, right? Your lab mates, your doctoral colleagues. And then, of course, they pointed to open communities like Stack Overflow and Reddit. And there was a funny contrast in that the, we wrote about this in the report, the infrastructure providers basically said, researchers are really, really happy to ask questions online. And the researchers said, we kind of hate asking questions online. And we thought that was a really interesting conflict, right? But what it really boiled down to was sometimes you need an interstitial space. You need a, a third space that is neither kind of local to you, nor is it completely public to the world. And sometimes it needs to be focused on a domain. So we're talking about supporting like kind of online communities of practice. And I've dropped a link in there to image.sc, which is a focused community where people have said, hey, this is going to be the primary support venue for these packages. And that has brought a community together with packages that are scientifically related, which creates a focused discussion that people feel more comfortable in. And that makes sense. And then at the other end, really talking about things like what they call hacky hours, which are kind of local events on campuses that often have online channels as well, where people can feel empowered just to drop in what might feel like a silly question and have people that they know kind of respond to those at a campus level. Sounds pretty awesome and straightforward to me. I like it. Uh, what's the next recommendation? So the next recommendation is to provide guidance for implementing web analytics to understand usage. So often when people have been funded or if they're releasing software and trying to make an argument for its impact in academia, they want to talk about how many users they've had, what publications their work has been used in, and all these measures of impact. But as we know, with open source, adding things like telemetry or understanding how download figures actually come to be, those can be really difficult, right? People don't want to add spyware into their software. Sometimes you can't even know who's using your code because it's distributed in broader distributions or packaged up in wheels or installed on 
supercomputing facilities already. So one of the things people talked about was actually instrumenting their web documentation. And we thought this was a really clever idea, right? You've got web pages out there. Maybe they're on Read the Docs. Maybe they're on their own website. And things like Google Analytics or some of the open source options can provide insight into who's coming along to those documentation, what things they're looking at, and you can build that out. Yeah. So it's interesting, right? In the context of research open source, you might get a grant and do a bunch of interesting work, and then you're trying to show impact and value. And the way we tend to do that is trying to identify who might have cited our software in a paper. And like we talked about in the first three recommendations, that's really hard to pick up as it is. And so you end up getting this impact report that doesn't really truly reflect the real impact that you had. And it also limits everything to publications only. So you don't actually get a full picture of the types of impact might have had elsewhere. And so some of the groups started talking about this, and I personally had to do this myself, is trying to implement web analytics because it gives you a much richer picture. And if you can pair this alongside other types of information, can really help drive the case for the fact that your software is having impact and needs to continue. And it also addresses one of the other challenges is that software takes a long time to show up in publications uh, before it's considered sort of mainstream. And so if you were funded to do some work this year, in about a year, you're not going to have dozens or hundreds of publications listing your software just yet. So relying on other types of information can really make a big impact when you're trying to show some value for your work. We talked a bit about analytics on this podcast before in episode 95 with plausible analytics. If you're interested more on that topic, do go check that one out. I'm really glad you mentioned citations and publications because it brings me to a question which I've had since the S-bomb question, which is, are we expecting to have a giant like leap where all software is suddenly also going to be mentioned in Google Research or Google Scholar? How are people going to find out whether their software has been cited and how is that going to influence their careers in the sense that it'll influence, say, the tenure bird's decision on whether or not people get tenure? Have you thought about the ramifications of that? So number one, we're going to need infrastructure to push the improved insight from things like S-bombs or extracting software mentions, right? So people have given it a shot, but it takes money to run services that are like that. So yeah, we think we're in a situation where increasingly we can actually identify software mentioned in publication with things like S-bombs or papers with code. We can actually link to the code that's created, but someone's going to need to step up and actually turn that into a data source that everyone can access. We are really interested in pursuing that as are a few other groups. In terms of actually applying that into things like tenure and promotion processes, that's going to take work as well, right? There are people who've been working across the board saying universities need to value the other sorts of impact that their academics make. People publish data sets and those matter. They drive research just like a new method or a new empirical finding in a paper. Same with software. So increasingly, universities are writing into their tenure and promotion and therefore their hiring policies that things other than publications matter for universities. But it's going to take time to actually make those arguments down to an individual faculty tenure case and tenure writing level. So we need policy work as well. And there are people working on that. But I think it's important for people to learn how to make those cases. And so, for example, often it's not convincing to academic colleagues to say, I've got thousands of users of my software. What you want to say is my software changed the way people think about research in this field. Learning to make those sort of intellectual contribution arguments is going to be key. Love that answer. That sounds super awesome. 
And it goes on to, I guess, recommendation number eight, which is providing a low friction way for researchers to link to software alongside data submissions. Make it easy for people to say, this was really useful for me without having to say, cite it just as the same as research. Provide another way for people to do that. I think that one's pretty self-explanatory. And as we're running up on time, I just like to wrap that one up there. So with that having been said, where can people learn more about continuation of this work or follow along with new findings that you two have about this work and what you're hoping to do? Or where can we find out more? James and I are really excited to pursue some of these different threads, including information that we can learn out of SBOMs, compare that to information that we get out of citations and software mentions and see how we can use all of these different data sets together to tell a compelling story of software impact. I'd say just keep an eye out in the usual spaces because we are working on a pretty detailed paper about this topic that will hopefully come out sometime next year and some of our newer projects in the space. James, anything else to add? Yeah, I mean, I think a good spot to check out is github.com slash soft site. Drop that into the chat. So this is our GitHub organization for our soft site extraction work. There's also the ERSI blog. Disentangle ERSI as an acronym for me. The U.S. Research Software Sustainability Institute. So thank you for thank you for mentioning that. So you'll start to see any interesting updates on our blog as well, including a blog post about this report that will be coming out fairly soon. Amazing. Awesome. And where can people find you two on the web? Richard, that is a loaded question in late 2023 because all the major social media has died out. You can find me in whatever exists at this point. I think I'm on Blue Sky and uh, Mastodon, (laughs) but uh, search for my name and you'll find me pretty easily. Yeah, people can find me at James Howison on their favorite social. If I'm not on there, forgive me. Nope, that's all right. And it is a loaded question. I should probably stop asking it and just assume that if you really wanted to be found, you can probably just go to their house somehow. Anyway, <laughs> super, super great. Thank you so much. It's a really interesting conversation. Don't leave yet. Customarily, at the end of every one of these podcasts, we have a section called Spotlight, where we spotlight various projects, people, things, or dog toys that we feel like just need a little bit more light shed on them. Traditionally, the host goes first. So my spotlight today is going to be iNaturalist. I've probably done this before, but iNaturalist is how I quickly found out today what species of scorpion exists in Costa Rica and how to identify the scorpion that had stung me in the bottom of the foot and whether or not I was going to die. The answer is no. The other answer was it's actually really difficult to learn how Pelos podiceps of a scorpion is, but I now know that because of iNaturalist. So if you haven't looked it up before, do go check out the super awesome citizen science project there. Super, super cool. Karthik, what is your spotlight today? So the person and project that I'd like to spotlight is Kyle Niemeyer at Oregon State, who is leading a new and interesting kind of training around research software development. So it is moving on from the basics and sort of helping you think through some of the more complex real-world challenges with scientific software development. There's a workshop coming up in Portland, and you can find a link on how to join us to possibly teach or attend the workshop on the Earthsea blog. Thank you so much. And James? Well, I want to spotlight Ava Brown, who's a doctoral student at the University of Washington. And Ava has a project called Council Data Project, which is looking at municipal government event data processing and 
Ava chatted to me about this recently and got right into how open source approaches, kind of the things we've learned about how to talk and vote and record and diffs in the software world can really matter for local legislative processes. So I thought this was fantastic. I want to feature Ava Brown. Thank you so much. And you'll find those links in the show notes. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, there's a few things you can do besides just listening, which is the first thing. So good job. You already went and pat yourself on the back and then tell your friends. Tell your friends that they should listen to this as well. If you have large pockets of money, you can send them to Richard Litauer. If you don't want to send them to an individual, but rather an institution, you can go to the Open Collective slash Sustain OSS. This project is funded by you. So if you have any use out of this, please give a bit back. That would be super, super great. You can also follow us on Blue Sky and Mastodon and LinkedIn, Sustain OSS. I think we're going to drop X completely because it's run by Nazis which I think is pretty fine. You could also go to discourse at sustainoss.org if you want to talk more about this or about other sustainability things. And please rate and like us wherever podcasts are sold, bought, or otherwise vended. Thank you so much once more for joining us, Karthik and James. I thought this was really, really awesome. Great work in the report. And I'm glad that it applies to more than just Australia because I think that this work is global in scope. And so are you. So thank you again. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, y'all. 